on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, in this episode on Innocence Abroad, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to finish my coverage of Innocence Abroad, which involves more than 100 pages. But I'm doing that just because, um, you know, the well, the last 100 pages includes a lot of uh, appendixes. So that's, that's, I guess, one justification for this. And it really would only end up being about 50 pages of text. And second is because I think I'm running out of things to say about this particular book, and I'm eager to get into roughing it and uh, talk about that book, which I think is is the more interesting of the two early uh, travel memoirs we have from from Mark Twain, and it's the um, and more historically significant, I guess. Um, <clears throat> now I've talked a lot about my own attitude towards tourism and how I find it kind of vulgar business. I, it, it feels kind of artificial and, and I've kind of attached Mark Twain's own opinions to that, that broad point of view. And yeah, maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe I'm arguing it. Maybe Mark Twain is just being comical because that's who he is. There's not a deeper cynicism about, about uh, travel here. And maybe someone who loves travel and loves tourism could read this book and come away thinking Mark Twain also loves travel. I don't know. I'm, I'm not in that position to uh, to know that. Um, now, Twain often juxtaposes various locations he observes with the reality of social inequality in industrializing Europe and, and by extension, sort of America, too. Um, now, especially when he gets to Asia. In Asia, in the Asian part of the trip, which is the last part of it, where they go to uh, Russia, then they go to Syria, and then eventually to Egypt, Damascus, Lebanon, they, they, through the Holy Land, the tour of the Holy Land, which was the point of the trip all along of the Quaker City. Um, but even in Europe, he juxtaposes the, the prosperity of industrialized Europe with its social inequality and poverty. Um, he writes, all throughout this Farbo Street, An Antonin, misery, poverty, vice, and crime go hand in hand, and the evidence of it stares one in the face from every side. Here the people live who begin the revolutions. Whenever there's anything of that kind to be done, they're always ready. So he makes the marginalized here historical actors, right? The, everything else is sort of dead. The tourists are dead. The tourist sites are sort of dead. Um... But there is a life there. There's sort of a radicalism in the, in the people, right? And you see less of that, I think, in Asia, where the poverty is much more brutal and presented much more, uh, uh, much more clinically, I suppose. He doesn't really go as far as to find those people, historical actors, in the way he finds through the European poor. Um, that's kind of one theme, and I'll, I'll probably say more about that. In the future. Um, now, he's also very interested in this book in the tourist-owned relationship to the past, right? He's aware that he's not 
being shown an accurate view of the past. Which is, that's the opening that allows him to do these entertaining sketches where he pokes fun at things like how the Leaning Tower of Pisa or the Colosseum are presented to tourists. Or how the, you know, some tombs are presented or, or some historical event is presented. Um, now, he often will try to translate these sites and this propaganda, this tourism, literature and stuff into Americanisms. Right? Like he writes his handbill for the Roman Colosseum in Americanisms. Um, he ultimately knows, though, that the authentic past will never be shown to the tourist. It cannot be shown to them. It doesn't exist anymore. And maybe people who lived that past and experienced that history and the legacy of that history might have a different point of view, but that's really not what uh, we're able to get here. Um, so I talked a lot about that, too, in the past. Um, now, I feel a little bit I'm over-interpreting this book, or I'm trying to over-interpret this book. I'm struggling because I'm not, I may be taking this book too seriously. Twain wrote it to give pleasurable and humorous accounts of naive, rushed, and materialistic Americans, which are, who are kind of in contrast to people without the past, without a past, visiting places with deeper past. So the joke, the, the is he dead joke, when he's talking about like Michelangelo and the Renaissance artists, only makes sense. It doesn't make sense from a European point of view. Obviously, Europeans have that deep relationship with their past, and everyone's dead. Like anyone of significance is is kind of dead. Um, they they understand the, this deep past. Americans, only around shortly, their heroes are in the recent past. Their great artists, Peel, or their Shermans, or their uh, you know their Emersons. They're still, they're still alive or, or, or not dead very long. So that question makes more sense from uh, the perspective of people without a past. Um, now, he enjoyed exposing the silly differences between Americans and the people he met as well. Um, you know, like the soap stuff is, is really funny. Um, but what we find when we put people without a past into historical sites is the debasement of their value in a way. They become reflections of their own desires, their own point of view. And Twain is showing that it's kind of impossible for Americans to understand the historical burden that these places actually contain. The Colosseum, for instance, for American Christian tourists is a site of martyrdom, right? Now, obviously, we all know that not that many Christians died in gladiatorial contests and not that many would have died in the actual Colosseum, um, which was like the Super Bowl place, right? Um, it's not for rung under the mill executions, but that's how it's kind of thought of in American Christian uh, philosophy and their perspective of the past. Twain uh, does seem to try to show the Coliseum as a site of community gathering, like a theater. So is this the fundamental problem with tourism, that it is sort of an act of, of theatrics? Um, so Twain's brilliant use of this American innocence to expose elements of the real history is where I think there's some really interpretive, in, interpretively interesting things to say about this book. So that's kind of summing up the, the themes I've been trying to explore here. Um, they're a little more written down now, so I can um, be a little clearer of the things I've been just kind of fumbling about a little bit earlier in this series. 
Um, so here's here's a uh, when we get to Asia, I think that especially the Holy Land, and he's experiencing kind of the decline of the Ottoman Empire, the relics of ancient empires that existed in that part of the world. We get uh, a, a tone change in a, in a bit of a different feeling. Uh, here's a quote: "Gray lizards, those heirs of ruin, of sepulchres and desolation." Gl- glided in and out among the rocks that lay still and stunned themselves sun themselves where prosperity has reigned and fallen where glory has famed and gone out where beauty has dwelt and passed away where gladness was and sorrow is where the pomp of life has been and silence and death brood in its high places there there this reptile makes his home and mocks all human vanity his coat is the color of ashes and ashes are the symbol of hope that have perished of aspirations that come to naught of loves that are buried if he could speak he would say, build temples. I will lord it in their ruins. Build palaces. I'll inhabit them. Erect empires. I will inherit them. Bury your beautiful. I will watch the worms at your work. You who stayed here and moralize over me, I'll crawl over your corpse at last. Now, reading this, of course, uh, we want to think about maybe Ozymandias, right? That it kind of has a similar feel to that of like these ancient lost empires that are now just homes of lizards, right? But... These are inspired when he's in the Holy Land, where he witnesses this decline of the Ottoman Empire amidst relics of even ancient empires, the Babylonians and the Israeli Empire and the Assyrians or whatever. And it's in the same section that Mark Twain suggests that the tourist himself and his companions were not much better than grave robbers or perhaps necrophiliacs in their fetishes for this fallen world. It's not, this is not a realization he made in Europe when he was talking, or at least not consciously. But it's sort of there as a subtext, I think, that there is kind of a weird fetishization of the past, disconnected from, from the reality that they live. He uses the term tomb desecrators for his companions, adding that wherever they go, they destroy and spare not. So the second half of this book, and especially the last 100 pages or so, continues the adventures of the band of mostly Christian tourists on the Quaker City as they explore all the required sites of the Mediterranean. And that's it doesn't change. The idea that we're going to go and see the required sites. We're going to go where we have to go. Right? We, so we go to um, Magdala, and we go to Jerusalem, and we go to Cairo and see the pyramids. We see what we have to see. So after braving their way through France and Italy and, and Mount Vesuvius and all this, they head first to Russia, and then to the Ottoman Empire. And these two empires were frequently at war. And Mark Twain mentions this at one point, saying you know, the Ottoman Empire is kind of so impoverished and, 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 and horrendous and fallen that he kind of just wishes Russia will just finish the job. Um, now, they survive. They visit this empire, this falling empire, this empire at war constant crisis in decline they return home safe they had actually visit the emperor of russia at one point right the czar and see the nobility of russia um and they come back and their experiences are then documented by twain they will live on in history as this great kind of explorers of the 19th century right and if you want to have a like a tourist account of 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 19th century American travelers, this is where you go first, right? So they, they live on forever. But a lot of the people that 
Um, and I suppose some of the poor, some of the, the marginalized at the edge of empire kind of live on in this book as well. But, um, but anyways, that's what we have. That's basically the story is a there and back again kind of tale. Now, a dark cloud over all this is the end of the wild, the end of wild spaces. So underpopulated regions of the Ottoman Empire that they visited were prepared for the tourists with necessary wares, transportation modes, and proper sites. Again, you go to the proper place, the proper place is ready for you. When you go to the, you check the places on the, the checklist. Oh, this is where I have to go. Oh, I have to see that. You know, of course I'd see Jericho or whatever. When you get there, it's, it's not only disentangled from its past, and all you have around there is kind of this brutal reality of the present. It's kind of like our moment, right? Where we're increasingly disconnected from our own past and all we live is this perpetual brutal moment of, of late capitalism that just seems endless. But we can't break free of it. It's, it's Philip Dick's uh, Iron Prison, Black Iron Prison. Um, now, is it any better today? I haven't been to the Holy Land. I don't know. I presume it's worse. Holy Land tourism is booming. Christians love to go to the Holy Land like these. These are just the first generation of what would be many trips like this to the Holy Land where Christians will go and gawk at their, at their favorite sites um, and, and probably still continue to ignore the realities around them that are, all, that are still the consequences of empire. Now, Twain's had already acknowledged many times the tedium of tourism. This is not a new theme in the second half of the book by any... Um, to any degree. It's, it's like repeated at nauseam, actually. And that's why I'm going to keep repeating it. So the Quaker city reaches the Russian city of Odessa. And there's nothing dis important to see um, according to the guidebooks. And it's kind of like, well, do we stop here? It's not in the guidebook. I'm like, well, there's no fancy restaurant here. There's no historical site. It's, it's, it's a city. It's a blank space on the map. Let's skip it. This creates an infantry moment when they... Um, but they actually stop there. And it creates a mo moment in which the group could enjoy a slightly more authentic day. Not everything ends up being planned, arranged, commercialized. In contrast, their visit to the pyramids, it, they're surrounded by people eager to take them to the summit. Quote, of course we were besieged by a rabble of muscular Egyptians and Arabs who wanted the contract of dragons to the top. All tourists are. End quote. So what's a more interesting thing to see, the pyramids or Odessa? In fact, the Odessa seems more interesting because it was just, what do we do here? We, we walk around and we experience the city. What do you do when you see the, the, the pyramids? Is you, get, you go on a tour. And you pay for it, right? I, I actually rather enjoy the moments between documents where the ship's crew got a good laugh at the tour at at the tourist pretensions and self-confidence. It's very subtle. Um, but we, as I said, and I think the first episode on this series is you have the sailors, you have the tourists, and then you have like the, the people and the places they visit. The sailors were much more likely than the middle and upper class tourists to be actually real adventurers, people who probably have really interesting pasts, it, you know, exciting tales to tell. You know, and Mark Twain probably should have talked to them and got more of those kind of tales. I think it would have added a lot. You see, he seems to get that point in roughing it. 
to say. I think in roughing it, he understands that what's really interesting are the people, not the sites, not the historical legacy of things. Um, the sailors, uh, so the, after they bump into the Russian royalty and the royal family while in southern Russia during their Black Sea component of the tour, and there's actually evidence that this, this, this wasn't just made up. Like you can find newspaper accounts of the of this group of people, including Samuel Clemens' name in it, met the king of the Tsar of Russia. Um, and they kind of fell into the awe of the spectacle of the empire. And the sailors sort of have a laugh about it. Um, now, I don't quite understand what Americans see in royal families, the British royal family in particular. But Americans seem to like to gawk at nobility um, despite having the, maybe it's because they overthrew the monarch that it becomes some kind of weird thing that they gawk at it's, it's like it's like gawking at the Colosseum or whatever it's like oh there's this legacy going back to the past and we don't have it we're just uh, we're just these young people who don't really have a history um, and on the return of the ship the sailors had fun here recreating the silly tourists and their feeble attempts to impress the Russian nobility one suspects the sailors did not have the same desire to lick the boots of these authority figures and the czar and, and the nobles. They really enjoyed mocking the silly addresses that this tourist wrote, and, and they're, they're kind of repeated. It's, it's really kind of funny. Um, you can find part of it written out here. Um, the sailors have a point. So, and Twain realizes this. It did, it did have this really silly opening. It's, quote, we are a handful of private citizens of America traveling simply for recreation and unostentatiously as becomes our official state. And therefore, we have no excuse to tender for preserving ourselves before your majesty. And they keep repeating this. Each one says this before doing their little address. And the sailors seem to like laugh about this because they're, they're, they, they're not sold by the pretension. Now, something else to talk about here, especially in the later half of the book, is the diversity of the Ottoman Empire and the, the Ottoman Empire's success at diversity. The, now, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is the Ottoman Empire will fall apart along ethnic lines. And it, this is a process that had been ongoing at the, the point of the, the events here take place. And eventually would be placed with an ethno-nationalist state, Turkey, which would commit crimes of genocide. And it, as it became ethno-nationalist. So the, the decline of the Ottoman Empire was kind of a tragedy of the, of the 20th century. The Soviet Union, in contrast, was much better at embracing a multi-ethnic identity with, with some errors along the way in that. But by and large, it, it, the Soviet Union didn't become an ethno, a Russian ethno-state until much later in its history. And even then, it never could fully because it was diverse. Read Affirmative Action Empire by, I think it's Terry Martin, if you want a window into that. Or read any New Qing history. Um, or read about the Mughals. All of these land empires, Asian land empires, had diverse populations. But while most of Europe is moving towards race-based, ethno-nationalistic uh, uh Basically, ethno, ethno-nationalism and scientific racism. Um, and we see, you know, if you're an anti-nationalist like me, anti-ethno-nationalist, you find these moments appealing. It's like that these people did coexist. Now, that, of course, requires a class analysis. Are some ethnicities in a, in a subjugated class structure? Are they limited in their upper mobility or whatever? But I think, nevertheless, 
if we want to be anti-nationalist, which I think many of us might probably want to be, um, that requires us to be to some degree internationalist. And what does that actually mean, right? Well, obviously it means respecting other cultures, other religions, other ways of living, not suppressing uh, various cultures, in fact, encouraging them to thrive if possible, right? It also might mean in some cases, some aspect like affirmative action where you need to actually correct historical inequalities or things like that. That's a bigger story story and a bigger um, discussion to have. But I think any any serious leftist agenda that's not essentially just a, a crypto fascist nationalist movement is going to have to be truly internationalist. And that's why I think things like the Qing or the Ottoman Empire or even Imperial Russia, this has something we can learn from. Um, now, Twain notices this because even in diverse America, he's struck by the diversity of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he see during his visit to Constantinople and other locations in the empire, he often talks about the different populations of people. Twain was actually impressed how modern Constantinople seemed to him um, and how it, it's progress. It's like a different question that this is during the Tanzimat reforms when the Ottoman Empire is trying to um, fix itself up a little bit. However, there are still many depressed commentaries on empire throughout this uh, um, book, which he constantly sees as sort of a tomb, a tomb of old empires depopulated and abandoned. Um, now, some ink has been spilled. When you study the Arab-Israeli crisis, you find out that these passages have been used by people who support Israeli empire and settler colonialism in Palestine to say Palestinians weren't really there. The suggestion has been made that Palestinians are invented peoples. And part of the evidence is that Twain does not see many Palestinians. That Twain saw so few of them in 1867 then suggests they're not the true occupiers of the region prior to the beginning of the Zionist movement. Um, now, I, as I read this, the region was sparsely populated by a diverse group of people, though, particularly uncomely Jews. This is what he writes, uncomely Jews, Arabs, and Negroes. So it's not, it doesn't have a huge population, but it doesn't mean it's not populated. Just because there's not many people doesn't mean there's not Palestinians. So I can test that argument, but it's there. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that these texts have been used for the nefarious purposes of backing Israeli um, apartheid. However, the vision of an impoverished and devastated Holy Land is clearest in his description of Magdala, which he says is full of, quote, vermin, tortured vagabonds, beggars, and cripples. Um, I, I think, you know, Mark Twain must have made a joke or at least thought it that Jesus seemed to have checked out, been executed before he finished his task of, of administering to all these beggars and cripples. His kind of people, right? Uh, these places uh, were also, from the tourist point of view, more wild, um, untamed by the profit motive, and therefore seen by tourists as backward and dangerous. And I think that's still true of tourism today. Like if you go to the places in a country that aren't, that aren't um, contrived by the tourist experience, 
that don't have the certain restaurants that cater to foreign travelers, that don't have the gift shops that cater to foreign travelers, don't have the sites in two languages, right, in Chinese and English for the foreign tourists, that don't have hotels that are overpriced compared to the local market to cater to the local tourists. You get off that, you're and you're in like the places that the locals know about, but you see that as kind of untamed. Well, it's because you are also sort of colonized by capitalism by this point. Anything that doesn't fit into a nice consumer experience is is backwards and dangerous and troublesome. And that's kind of what happens in Magdala to our tourists here. Um, I found the most powerful moments in uh, this book to be Twain's sad commentary on the fate of empires and the relationship of a forward-thinking people without history to the past, like Americans. Um, you know, um, there is a lot here, um, but but I think if I say too much more, I'm just going to end up repeating myself again and again. So I'm going to stop and and kind of cheat a little bit and say this is about 150 pages of text and then you have appendixes which we could just sort of skip they don't really add that much and oh no this one doesn't have appendixes sorry innocence of blood doesn't have appendixes the roughing it does but anyway same i'm, I'm still gonna stop it doesn't matter um and just say, read it and experience it. Um, I have my preference for roughing it, um, written a couple years later. It does seem more interesting because Twain is interested in the common people much more. He's like on the frontier of capitalism. So he's not going to see old empires. He's not going to be seen. Uh, there's not going to be a, a, a royal family to visit. It's just going to be a, a, a frontier barely tamed depopulated as well by, by genocidal American expansion, but uh, a bit of an open space for people like Mark Twain to, to explore. It's also his youth. So there's a lot of fun in the fact that it's his youth. So um, I'm looking forward to talking about it. So if you are looking forward to having two more episodes about um, Innocence Abroad, sorry. This is all you're going to get from me for now. Um, but I will do four full episodes on roughing it. Um, I think it's really a fun tale. I will give you much more, I think, of a... I don't know if I'll do chapter by chapter, but I, I will kind of follow the, the plot, such as it is of the story, a little bit more. Because it, it does speak to early events of Mark Twain's life uh, that I think are significant to think about going forward. Um, so and then we're done with that. Uh, I'll f jump to novels again, and I guess we'll be looking at... We'll do uh, the medieval romances. We'll do Prince and the Pauper, Connecticut Yankee, and Joan of Arc. We'll do those three novels. And then I think we'll flip back to uh, other travelogues. Then flip to the Gilded Age. The late Mar the Gilded Age and the late, late uh, Tom Sawyer books. Stranger number 40 or whatever. Stranger number 44. And then we'll get into the, the, there's two volumes of his like essays and short stories. So I'll save those for the end of this series. So um, that's what's going to head, going to go ahead for the next, I don't know, 65 or 70 episodes. So um, 
I think we got a good start here on Mark Twain. Um, anyways, thanks for listening. I will see you next time as we jump into roughing it. Thanks for listening. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making.